Boy, this is our last week of the Rhythms of Grace um, series that we're in, and you're going to want a Bible this morning, as we do each week, so go on and open up your Bibles. If you need a Bible, we have some people walking around, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and we will actually be in Leviticus, uh, everyone's favorite book of the Bible today, Leviticus 23, and so, uh, like I said, if you need a Bible, we got some, and if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, receive that as just a gift from us to you. We feel like it's one of the most precious things that you can receive, uh, God's written word. And so as you're finding your way to Leviticus, A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say that again. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That your conception of God determines the life that you will live. And so, what do you think about when you think about God? I mean, is he more like a cosmic cop waiting on the highway of life to write you a ticket? Or a heavenly Santa Claus that's taking notes on whether you've been a, a good boy or girl this year in order to give you what you want? Is he a loving father or a distant dad? Who is God? Or as the great theologian Cal Naughton Jr. in Talladega Nights says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I still like to party. What do you think about when you think about God? And the thing about Jesus, and actually, interestingly enough, Cal Naughton Jr. is not too far off because when Jesus shows up on the scene, and the Bible writes that in Colossians that Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. So if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, he completely messed with people's perceptions and understanding of what God was like. He showed a God who was able to identify with us in all of our pain, in our struggles, in our temptations, in our weakness, in our difficulties. But he was, he was a God that knew grief and suffering and loneliness and loss, but also a God that invites us into the fullness of life. Or as Jesus says in John 10, life and life in abundance. A life of flourishing, fruitfulness. A life of joy. It's Jesus who declared, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So yes, a God who likes to party. And as we come to the final week of our journeys, our rhythms of grace journey, we've looked at how God invites us into experiencing his presence as this daily rhythm of our life. The waking and the sleeping, the sun that rises and the sun that sets, the breathing in and the breathing out of recognizing the presence of God as part of our daily rhythm of life. And that to live apart from that is to live apart from the life that God created you to live. And the consequences that come when we live against the way that our bodies and our brains and our hearts and our relationships were wired to thrive. And we talked about beyond that daily rhythm that God set into the fabric of the universe, into the very uh, foundation of creation, this weekly rhythm of stopping and resting. Six days of fruitful labor and one day of remembering it's actually God who is in charge. He is God and we are not. But we'll also discover that God wrote into the calendar of his year these seasonal remembrances, these festivals and feasts, in other words, these giant parties, to remember that God is good and faithful and true. That God invites us into this seasonal rhythm of celebration and gratitude. 
Now, the reality is, is that we are, we are called to live intentionally grateful lives as, as a daily practice. I mean, even in that daily rhythm of, of, of encountering the presence of God is, is to stir in us a life of gratitude and joy. And so, you know, Psalm 118, 24 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the invitation for our daily life. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul writes, Give thanks in every circumstance, whatever's happening to you, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This continual remembrance of gratitude and blessing. And then obviously in the weekly Sabbath, and those of you that practiced that this past week, and I hope whether you began a new weekly rhythm of Sabbath or, or deepened your understanding of Sabbath as compared to a day off, a day unto the Lord, is this... this time of stopping to, to express our gratitude, the receiving of God's blessing in our life. But also, as I said, he built into the calendar year this regular rhythm of celebrations and feasts. And so we look at Leviticus 23. And I'm not going to dig deep into, uh, into each of these feasts and festivals. They are, they are fascinating, and, and I would love to, you know, Bible nerd out with you at any point because I have just loved digging into this. I mean, it's fascinating to me what God kind of, you know, uh, uh, wrote into the law that was going to define this new way of life for his people. But Leviticus 23 begins with this. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is part of the commandment, the, the, the law of God. Again, when you think about the rules and the laws of God, most of us don't think about make sure that you party often. But it's right here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts or festivals, celebrations of the Lord, that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Or holy gatherings. They are my appointed feasts. And he begins. Six days work shall be done. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of a solemn rest. A sacred rest. A holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath unto the Lord. In all of your dwelling places. Wherever you live practice this weekly rhythm of sabbath but on top of that he says these are the appointed feasts of the lord the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them that god is setting them into motion as this rhythm of the year in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the first month of the jewish year just so you know a couple of things is uh, it's called nisan uh, not the car it's a month and uh but the, the month of nisan is uh, it literally that word nisan just means spring and the difference when you're studying the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish ca calendar year as compared to our calendar year, the Gregorian or the Roman calendar year, is that it's based off the lunar calendar. And the lunar cycle runs on a, every 28 days. That the, the moon that, that moves from uh, waxing to full to waning to new and this rhythm of, so every, think about the seven-day rhythm, right, that God wove into the fabric of creation is based off that seven-day lunar cycle. And so the first month of spring, the month of Nisan, God is saying, the very first thing I want you to celebrate is at the, the full moon of Nisan, the 14th day, I want you to remember the Passover. That miraculous event when I delivered you out of slavery by the blood of a lamb, cross you into the wilderness and set you free into the promised land. And I want you every year to celebrate that great and awesome miraculous moment that defines you as a people, that you are a people who are no longer slaves. And in fact, I want you to throw a party. That's not just any party for one night. I want you to throw a seven-day party. And on top of that, at the end of that seventh day, I want you to throw another party on the eighth day, and that's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so I want you to just, for seven days, plus one, the fullness of joy, plus one, I want you to remember what I did for you, how I provided for you, how I delivered you, that you are no longer slaves. And so we get the first two festivals, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then immediately after Passover, in this, uh, in this remembrance of God's deliverance, he, 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 I also want you to remember now that I'm the one who will provide for you. 
And so this is what I want you to do. That when you first see the crops beginning to, to arrive, at, you know, remember this is the beginning of spring. And so if you think about it, you may have noticed now a few of the pink trees. And I don't ever remember which ones those are. I love them because it's like the first sign of spring, right? You know, you see that the trees turn pink in, in the midst of all of the dead of winter. Or you begin to see the bulbs just beginning to break up out of the ground. Like that first sign of spring. And so he's like, I want you to take the very first sign of spring as an offering of the first fruit to me. And what I want you to do, the very first sign of spring, I want you to take the first of your harvest that's just beginning to break up out of the ground and take it to the temple at the end of this Passover feast, at the end of unleavened bread, and I want you to wave it before God as an offering and a declaration of God's provision and goodness. This is the kind of God we serve. I will protect you. I will redeem you. I will provide for you. You are no longer slaves. Remember who you are. And then what he says is, he says, now, this is what I want you to do from there. You're at the beginning of spring. Now, I want you to take seven sevens. Anyone good at math? What's seven times seven? 49 plus one on the 50th day. Seven times seven on the 50th day. I want you to have a celebration. They call it the Feast of Weeks from the seven sevens. And it's towards the the fullness of harvest, when harvest is really beginning to blossom. And I I want you to take that festival as as a day, a holy day unto the Lord. And then what I want you to do, as the harvest is coming to a close, and we get into the seventh month, again, we begin to feel these rhythms that God wove into here. In the seventh month of our year, I want you, on the seventh day of that seventh month, I want you to blow trumpets as a giant feast before God. This reminder that I am the one who shows up for you faithfully. And so that Feast of Trumpets, five days later, the, the, what feast are we on? The fifth feast, sixth feast, is actually the only one that's not technically a feast, and it's a fast. I, I think sometimes we uh, can reverse God. It's like God is going gonna, is gonna to withhold for seven or six and then bless you with one, but God's the opposite. There's six feasts and one fast. The only day that actually is commanded to fast is the Day of Atonement, and it was the one day that all of the people would fast and the, and the, uh, the high priest would, would himself be covered by the blood of a ram so that he would be cleansed and then he would go into the most holy place and offer a sacrifice on the altar on behalf of all the people that they would be forgiven for their sins. And on that day, the day of atonement, uh, he would represent the people before God and the sacrifice would represent God's, peop- God's forgiveness of the people. And on that day, the people would fast. And then a few days later, don't worry, we're going to always move from fast to feast. It's the heart of God. He's a God of abundance and delight and joy would be the final feast. And in the seventh month, the final feast was called the Feast of Booths. And what they would remember in the Feast of Booths is they would actually go outside and they would, they would live, they would build like a temporary dwelling, uh, like basically like a giant tent part. It's sort of the original Burning Man if you know what that is. Like, God created that. He's the one with these creative ideas, right? And so, so he's like, go out, and, and, and I want everyone in the community to build a temporary dwelling, and you're going to live outside, and you're going to have a seven-day tent party and not do any work and trust that I will provide for you. And in these temporary dwellings, you'll remember how I carried, with you th- carried you through the wilderness and provided you with the tabernacle by leading you by a cloud by day and, and fire by night, that I am your God and you are my people. And then a few months later, springtime is all over again, and we'll start it up over again. These rhythms of feasts and festivals that God wove in to remember who he is and what he has done for us. And so we get to Jesus, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus, and Jesus uh, multiple times in the gospel, will reference different times he would go to Jerusalem. It wasn't just to go hang out in Jerusalem. Most of the times when he went to Jerusalem, it was because he was showing up for one of those feasts. <clears throat> and so we know that he, he celebrated the Feast of Booths. We definitely have uh, um, multiple references to him celebrating Passover. But beyond that, Jesus didn't just celebrate these appointed feasts. 
He also redefined, remember, he's embodying the life of the kingdom, the availability of the presence of God. And so what does Jesus do? The first miracle of Jesus, I don't know, you may have been to a wedding, you probably know this, but the very first miracle does that reveals his glory as a sign to the people is what uh, John chapter 2 tells us. Is he goes to this wedding with his family and his friends. And at this wedding, they run out of wine. Wine, the symbol of joy, the symbol of, of festivity, the fullness of God. And so his mom comes to him and is like, hey, listen, it's about to be a shame on, it's, 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 uh, it's uh, generally understood that somehow there's a familial connection to, uh, to whatever the wedding is. We don't know whose wedding it was, but, uh, but Jesus is there. It seems to be a family affair. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mom, is trying to protect her, her family from some kind of shame. If they run out of wine, that would be an embarrassment to the host. And so she pulls Jesus aside. She's like, come on, do something. And he's like, listen, this is not my time yet. In other words, it's not time to reveal who I am yet. And yet, because he's a good son and loves his mom, this, and also the timing and the situation is, is exactly perfect to uh, announce the kind of kingdom that he was proclaiming. It says that Jesus uh, turns these giant pots of, of water that was used for the ceremonial bathing and turns them into wine. He takes them to the host of the, the, the servants, take this, this newly formed water into wine to the uh, master of the ceremony. The master of the ceremony drinks it and is blown away, and he's like, what is this? Normally at a party, they wait till all the guests have drank too much and then serve the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best until now. In other words, Jesus, this proclamation of the fullness of God's joy, the availability of the kingdom, is saying, it's like, you've been tasting the, the dirt stuff. And now that I've arrived, I'm showing you the best stuff. Like, this is Jesus. A little while later, Jesus will call a man named Levi, or also known as Matthew, the tax collector, despised by his community. And, uh, and he'll say to Matthew, as he's walking by, he'll say, hey, follow me. And Matthew leaves everything behind, willing to go with Jesus wherever Jesus is calling him to go, completely reversing everything about Matthew's life. But what I love about this story, follow me. And the first place that Jesus takes Matthew is back to his house to throw a giant party for all of his sinner friends. And the religious leaders, they don't like that. It's like, who is this that is eats with sinners and tax collectors? A little while later in Luke, we know that Jesus at a different time uh, was being surrounded by these crowds. He walked under the sycamore tree. There's another short little guy, a tax collector up in the tree named Zacchaeus. And Jesus, Jesus stops, looks up at it and says, Zacchaeus, today I need to have dinner at your house. And we know Jesus throws another party for all, Zacchaeus and all of his friends. Again, the religious leaders say, who is this that eats with sinners? Jesus redefining their understanding of who God was and what God was about, that God is bringing in the availability of his kingdom, the availability of his presence with us in the midst of our broken world, our suffering world, uh, the, a world of lack and depravity. God was saying, I am showing up and I am inviting you to be with me. This is the God that we are invited to surrender our lives to. And his name is Jesus. Can you receive that? We know at the end of his life, before the cross, that is, Jesus has one final meal, the Passover meal, with his disciples. And I love that the way he sets that up. He says, I have eagerly, like my heart has longed to share this feast with you. Because he knew all along that all of these feasts and festivals, all of these celebrations and parties were all pointing to him. He was the fulfillment of everything they were about. That Jesus was the salvation they were waiting for. He was the redemption. He was the provision. He was the protection. That Jesus himself was the embodiment of the joy of heaven. But first he had to go through the cross. But even at that last Passover feast, I read this verse, but it is in that context, this Passover meal that he's sharing before he walks out the door to his death, that Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you about what it means to live a life of obedience and love to one another. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
may be full. That somehow, even in the midst of Jesus' darkest moment, the suffering that he knew he would endure, the, 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 the path of death that would ultimately lead to life, God's intent from the beginning was that they might live in the fullness of joy. Or as C.S. Lewis writes, joy is the serious business of heaven. So once again, Cal Naughton Jr. knew what he was talking about. So we might ask, are, are we supposed to then reenact or re-enter into this, this Jewish calendar of, of feasts and festivals? Is that what we're talking about? Well, no. Paul actually writes in Colossians, he says, uh, um, Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come. And listen to this phrase, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so even as we're talking about Sabbath, we're not talking about it as a, as a legal regulation that you're, you, that you're meant to follow because you're bound to it, but instead that you're being released into the freedom of Sabbath that God designed from the beginning of creation. It's a get-to, not a got-to. It's a gift, not a curse. It's a blessing, not a burden. And so, and so even with the festivals and the feasts, the new moons, I mean, he's talking about that Jewish lunar calendar. He's saying these aren't to, to bind you. They were all pictures of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill. So then the question becomes about each of these feasts and festivals, about the law uh, that Jesus embodied, is what, what do we learn about the heart of God? What do we learn about life in the kingdom from these things? As we said, that Jesus, the way that he lived and the things that he taught really shook up people's understanding of what God's heart was. But he was bringing them back to God's original intent. He was reminding them of what was true. He wasn't actually doing anything new. But instead, what God was intending all the way back from the garden. So there's one last passage I wanted to look at that I think beautifully captures the heart of God and this life of celebration that, that the Lord invites us into. And it's a passage that actually surprised me when I came across it uh, because it's just not um, the way we typically think about God. And so if you'll flip forward in your Bible, if you were in Leviticus, flip forward a couple of books to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14. So Deuteronomy 14 begins with this powerful statement, this identity statement, and actually you may recognize it. It's one of the, the major identity markers of the Jewish people is from the beginning of this chapter. God declares, you are the children of the Lord your God. That's your identity. You are sons and daughters of God. And there's this obscure phrase that says, do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. That seems pretty random. But it continues, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, uh, don't mark yourself for the dead or don't, don't bind yourself to the dead because you belong to a God of life. And then there's all these rules and regulations about what they're to eat and what they're not to eat that's going to set them apart as God's people, and we won't get into all that. But what I want to get to is Deuteronomy 14, 22, when God talks about the tithe. Now, pause right there before you read it, because when you hear that, or when, when you hear that we're going to talk about God's tithe at church, how many of you, your first reaction is like, oh gosh, here we go. Now, the word tithe is actually very interesting, because the word tithe just literally means tenth. And, uh, and it comes out of, uh, so elsewhere in the, um, in the law, we won't get into that, but it talks about tithing a portion of your crops, the first fruit of your crops. 
which is, in other words, I want you to give the first 10% of your harvest to me uh, as, as, a, as a release, God is saying, and a surrender, trusting me with the first 10% so that I will bless you with the other 90%. Later on, God will say, like, test me in this. If, if you obey my tithe, will I not bless you? Abundantly more it carries this idea of God saying is that the tithe isn't God needing our money like today We don't uh, our currency isn't you know grain and goats, you know, we, we actually use debit cards and cash but um, it, But the, the point the principle is the same is like the thing your provision your labor your work I want you to surrender the first 10% to me as an act of releasing your heart from bondage to the work of your hands and, and to the, uh, the, 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 your money and possessions so that you are actually trusting in me and I will more than abundantly care for you, God is saying. That was the point of the tithe. Continues to be the point of the tithe. Releasing to God for God's purposes so that we can live fully for God and God's purposes. But here, it's interesting because the phrasing actually in the Hebrew, it says that you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Okay, they knew that. But the beginning of that phrase, and we can't capture it very well in the English, is it, it literally is tithe your tithe. So what, God's, what we're about to talk about is God is saying, yes, yeah, sure, there's the 10% that you're trusting me with. You're surrendering to me uh, as an act of, of obedience and, 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 uh, and release and freedom. Um, but I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a portion of your tithe. I want you to tithe your tithe, and this is what I want you to do with it. Before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. We know that later that will be Jerusalem or the temple will be built. But you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. In other words, God is saying, is like, I actually want you to take a portion of what you're surrendering to me, and I want you to enjoy it so that you can learn to revere and honor my name, that I am for you. I'm not taking away from you. I am pouring back into you. So I want you to take a piece, a tithe of your tithe, and it continues. It's pretty hilarious, actually. But if the place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, in other words, your 10% is so, so much that to get to Jerusalem is going to be too costly of a journey when you're trying to, you know, if you, let's say you have 3,000 sheep, and so your tithe that year would be 300 sheep. And so now you're going to take 300 of your sheep to Jerusalem across the mountains and the desert. Most of them are going to get eaten by wolves in the journey. And so what he's saying is, okay, listen, you can sell it and you can turn it into to money, but then this is what I want you to do with that portion of your tithe. Take, exchange your tithe for silver, take the silver with you, and go to the place your Lord God will choose. And then use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other strong drink, or anything you wish, anything you desire is literally the word there. Then you and your household, your family, shall eat together in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. In other words, take the tithe of your tithe and throw a giant party. Do you get that? This is God saying, take the tithe of your tithe and buy whatever your heart desires. And in the, my presence, with me. Like, this isn't just like a debauchery party, you know, like a, a rave out in the field. Like, this is in my presence, with me. I want your heart to delight in my fullness and in my joy. So that you will learn to revere, to honor, to exalt me. And he continues... And don't neglect the Levites, the priests living in your towns, for they have no inheritance of their own. In other words, uh, they had no land. They belonged to the temple. And so part of the party was also to provide uh, for the priests that were serving in the temple day and night. 
And then at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of the year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners or the, uh, the immigrants, the fatherless and the widows who live in your town may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand. There's a point in all of this. Because we're getting to the heart of God. What is life in the kingdom of God meant to look like? It's a, a life of delight, of abundance and joy. But it's not simply, remember, remember the very first call of God to the children of Israel in Genesis 12 to Abraham. I will bless you. Why? Because I like you more than everyone else? No, do you remember? Why did God say that he would bless his people? He's very clear about it. I will bless you so that what? You will be a blessing. Say that. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. The abundance of joy that God is inviting us into, the giant party that is a signpost to the kingdom isn't about you, or it's not just about you. It's that the rest of the world will be blessed through your life with God. And so what God says is, and if we have all, go on and throw up the slide that, is, uh, that, that shows the party tithe. It's like it's every third year, and so I want that the tithe of the tithe to go to is to care for the vulnerable and the oppressed in your land. And so year one and year two, I want you to throw a giant party as a community. Year three, I want you to care for the vulnerable. Year four and five, we're going to throw another party for the community. Year six, we're going we're to provide solely for the vulnerable. In other words, God's saying, my heart is to exalt in your joy and that you would be a people that bring blessing to the oppressed the lost, the forgotten, and the afraid around you. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that in year one, two, four, and five, don't worry about the poor. He actually explicitly says, when the poor among you, uh, if there's poor among you, make sure that you're caring for their needs. But explicitly on these years, I want your abundance to go to caring for those that feel forgotten and lost and are vulnerable. This is the heart of God. This is actually what Jesus is starting to get back to when he talks to the Pharisees and says, listen, when you throw a party, don't just invite your mom and your friends and your wealthy neighbors because they can bless you back in return. I want you to go out in the streets and get the forgotten and the vulnerable and the fragile, and I want them to be the ones that you're inviting to your party. This isn't just a party of selfishness and self-centeredness. This is a party of abundance and delight. Why? Because you are no longer slaves. Slaves through parties of selfishness, free people through parties of abundance for the sake of their neighbors and the forgotten. That's the life. That's what church is meant to be. This community of God living in a new way of understanding who God is and life in the kingdom of God a way of life-giving rhythms where we are not slaves to our jobs, we are not slaves to the economy, we are not slaves to our circumstances, we are not slaves to this world. We are freed by God to be a redeemed people that can embody a life of joy and grace and hope and blessing to the world around us. Now there's this other cool thing and I'm running out of time. I love this. Gosh, I could just keep going into this because this is really cool. So on the seventh year, there's no tithe. Why? Because every seventh year, God is saying, I don't want any slavery. We're going all the way back to Eden. And on the seventh year, I actually want you to give a Sabbath to your land because your, I don't, your land is no longer a slave to you. Set your land free for a year. And so there's, and it's like, trust me for a whole year that you're not gonna farm your fields so that out of the abundance of that year, you can be even more fruitful. It's actually the same idea as this sabbatical that we were talking about before. It's like, let the land rest for an extended time so that you can be more fruitful on the other side. Now, we know best farming practices nowadays, science has proven this is actually just smart, but God wove this in way back before anyone was studying chemicals and soil testing because he was saying, Set the land free. We're going back to Eden. And then, seven times seven plus one, on the 50th year, once in a lifetime, I want you to have an extra year, and we're going to call that the year of Jubilee. And we're going to start that year, you're going to blow trumpets, and when you blow those trumpets, listen to what happens. Every slave gets set free. Every debt gets released. 
And all people who have lost anything in homes and land, it gets restored. In other words, the great restoration of God's kingdom for his people happens in the 50th year. Seven times seven plus one. I want you every year to remember that you are no longer slaves, you are free. But on that 50th year, everything is reset. Now here's what's crazy. There is no record in history of the Jewish people ever celebrating a year of Jubilee. Why? Well, if you're a wealthy landowner, do you like the idea that your servants get set free, that your debts get canceled? If you are in power, are you really going to let the oppressed who lost their homes go back and reclaim their, their fields and their vineyards? No. No history of the Jubilee, God's year of restoration and redemption, of, of, of the slaves being set free, debts being canceled, ever happening. And then Jesus shows up. And in Luke chapter 4, it says that after being tempted in the wilderness... Jesus begins his ministry, and he begins his ministry on Sabbath by going into the temple, and they hand him the scroll that happens to be the reading of Isaiah. And when they hand him the scroll, Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. He handed it back to the attendant. And all eyes were fixed on him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, Jesus came proclaiming the long-awaited year of Jubilee when slaves would be set free, when debts would be canceled, when the people would be restored, that Jesus, in the fullness of time, fulfilled what is the substance of what everything else was a shadow pointing to. Jesus is the year of Jubilee that every person was eagerly waiting for. And so... We now sit on this side of the cross and resurrection. We're invited into this life of joy and celebration to be a people of blessing who bless others, that trust, that live lives of freedom and trust to a God who's always shown himself faithful. And yet we still live in a broken world, in a world of pain and hurt and grief and sorrow. And so joy for us is a signpost, a hint of what God is waiting for us in heaven. And the Bible ends. If the Bible begins with a garden party, the Bible begins, I mean, sorry, the Bible ends with another garden party. In Revelation 19, <clears throat> the final fulfillment of Jesus bringing everything to completion, the beloved Apostle John is given this vision. I heard what sounded like a giant multitude, the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunders, everyone shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And that fine linen represents the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. For the heart of God is pulling all of eternity to this point when every knee will bow when he wipe away every tear, well, there will be no more sin or death. And our hearts in the fullness of joy will declare with all of creation, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. So the practice this week 
as we learn to, to realign our lives into these life-giving rhythms. This is the invitation. Like our heart should be like swell at this reality that we are to live in light of, of eternity. And our lives are to be a reflection, a signpost of the kingdom of God. And so the, the invitation this week is to continue this, the habit stacking of our daily practices of, of prayer and scripture and silence. And encouragement is, that, is to, to build into your life this weekly 24 hours of stopping, resting, delighting in God and, uh, and worshiping and contemplating Him. But to add in these seasonal rhythms of feast and festival to redefine what parties in the kingdom look like. And, and so this week you're invited to throw a Sabbath feast to continue that practice of that 24-hour Sabbath, but to begin with some kind of party. Now, this idea, it says, a.k.a. throw a celebrate life party. And that actually comes from uh, several years ago. Um, some friends and I, we were all young. Um, we're just beginning in ministry. We'd all, a bunch of us had just gotten married. Um, I think we had just, uh, Eden had just been born, so this would have been 18 years ago, 19 years ago. And, uh, and we, were, we got together once a week to just pray together. And uh, it was at our first house in this little living room area. And we were all together in this room. And what we realized is that we'd, we'd been there for about an hour and hadn't prayed yet. And all we had done is just complained the whole time. About, which is hilarious to me now, but about how hard our lives were. That's 24-year-old idiots, you know? I mean, it's like, but life seemed really overwhelming at the time. And, uh, you know, complaining about our jobs, complaining about people, complaining about how hard marriage was and not sleeping. And, I mean, just complaining, complaining, complaining. And, and finally, like, it just, and I don't remember exactly what happened. I mean, that was a long time ago. But what I remember is we all we were like, what are we doing? And so we, we were like, let's just separate because this doesn't feel healthy. And so we all went to different rooms and we just prayed, like, let's just see what God has to say to us. And when we came back, uh, after praying alone for a few minutes, we all came back, and every one of us had the same impression, which was to lean in to gratitude. That the antidote to bitterness and complaining was gratitude. And so we came up with this idea. We were going to throw a party. And we called it a Celebrate Life party. And, uh, and my friend, a guy named Tripp, he had a, an uncle and I had this, this cool boat up at, um, up at the lake. And so we invited everyone to come up to the boat for, uh, for a Saturday. But we were like, but the whole point of the entire day is just to say thank you to God. And so when everyone showed up at the church parking lot to carpool up there, uh, we had these note cards that we gave them with questions to ask on the way up. And, and we gave them a playlist to listen to on the way of certain songs. And then when they got there, on, at the begin, right at the back of the boat, uh, we had a friend who was an artist, and she'd begun this painting. And there were paints and, uh, and markers that you could add to the painting just uh, if it, as an expression of, of, you know, what you were thankful for. And then we just played all day, and we, we ate burgers and just had a party. And then we, at night, as the sun was setting, we, we worshiped up on the, the top of this boat together. And then on the way back to the dock, we just had a giant dance party. And it was one of the most fun days of my life. But what I remember about it is that Tripp's aunt and uncle, who were not believers, they were just willing to let their nephew use their boat for the day. And they were part of it. And we happened to dock in this cove that we found out later they called the Party Cove. And, uh, and there were all of these other boats around. And we were hanging out with them all day. But then at night, we had this worship night, like I said. And then we had this dance party after the worship night. And all these people from all these boats started kind of coming towards our boat. And at the very end of the night, as we're heading home, Tripp's aunt grabs a hold of him. And with tears in her eyes, said, this is her phrase. I have no idea what tonight was about, but if you ever want to do this again, this is always available to you. There was something that she got a glimpse of in the joy of heaven, in the celebration of God, that her heart was longing for. And she told us stories later about the different boat friends that they had. They were like, when are y'all doing the, you know, when are you doing the party church again? We love that. 
A few years later, Sadie and I had gotten into some significant debt, just dumb choices. Mainly, I was in charge of the finances, which was the dumb decision. <laughs> and, uh, and so he got on Dave Ramsey, and, um, and, and it worked for, for almost a whole year on this whole get-out-of-debt plan. And, uh, and we decided, with that Celebrate Life party in mind, that the, the month after we paid off that final debt, that we would take the amount that we were using each month to pay for debt, and we would use it to throw a giant party for our friends. And we called it our second Celebrate Life party. And the whole night was just simply about celebrating that God had brought us into this place of, of celebration and, and debt. Now, why am I telling you these stories? Because I'm trying to awaken your imagination to what kind of parties we throw. And so the invitation this week is just try to throw a party that is intentionally about celebrating the goodness of God. And whether that's with note cards and questions or worship and dancing. And so there's a few keys to, uh, to uh, a, a celebrate life party or to living a life of seasonal celebration. And the first one is this. Be a kid. Like, what do kids love to do? Without shame, they will sing and dance like they are Elvis Presley. That's a dated reference. Justin Timberlake. I don't know. I mean, whoever. Like, just be a fool and sing and delight in God and dance together. Over and over again, you see the celebrations of the Bible. God's inviting us to release, like, the, the shackles of our shame and our, and our shoulds. The, you know, like, the perception we're trying to give off and just be free. And singing and dancing awakens something in our hearts. Laughter. God's gift of joy is our ability to laugh, to tell stories with our friends, to remember what our hearts delight in. It's a God's gift of goodness. And as we're inviting the, the vulnerable and the broken alongside of us into this journey of joy, it's learning to be true friends together. And friends laugh together. Like, there's a difference between serving the poor out of a place of my abundance and your poor lack, and so, oh, I'm going to meet your needs— and being a friend and just laughing with somebody. That's two completely different postures. Laugh together. Delight in God. Awaken imagination and creativity. Delight in God's creation and beauty. Number four, reimagine how you do family events. What if birthdays become blessing days? where it's all about just speaking blessing over the person who you're thanking God that they were born. We started when our kids were young incorporating this into their birthdays is intentionally at some point to just pray God's blessing over them and over the year ahead. It's a day unto the Lord. And how many birthdays do we have that it's just a day that you celebrate, eat some cake? The day of saying, God, thank you for this human that you created. Thank you for who they're becoming. We were having dinner the other night with some friends uh, who had just lost their grandfather, <clears throat> and they were <clears throat> preparing for the funeral. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, <clears throat> we were talking about eulogies, and, uh, and they were remarking on how, how it's kind of sad that we end up writing the things that, and saying the things that we love most about somebody after they're gone. They're like, what if we just took time? And it was kind of a morbid thought to write eulogies for somebody who's living, but like, what if we just took time to say, like, what would be the thing I would say? What would be the thing I would celebrate about you? And I was thinking about that with Sadie, and I realized, like, if I, you know, and, you know, God forbid, but if I had to, like, speak her eulogy, what would I say? And I was like, oh, it'd be easy. The, the, I would absolutely, without hesitation, say she is the most amazing woman that I have ever met in my life. Why would I not tell her that? Why would I wait until she was gone to tell all of our friends this thing that I would want her to know? What if we spoke blessing? What if we changed our, our family days? So five, take advantage of cultural celebrations as a day unto the Lord. What do it mean to turn St. Patrick's Day into a day that uh, is actually a day of joy and, and thanking God for his goodness in our life? Halloween, 4th of July, a day of freedom. God, thank you for fill in the blank. And then number six, declare a week of jubilee. 
What if you did vacation different this year? What if you reimagined your week of vacation and said, what would it look like if this was a day of truly, I mean, a week of learning to truly be present with God and with one another? What if for a whole week we turned off all of our devices and completely just unplugged? What if we went on walks together and delighted in one another? What if we spoke intentional blessing over each other? What if for a whole week we just asked God, what would it look like to celebrate you and the good gifts that you've brought into our lives? And what if, imagine this, you actually came home from vacation, rested and restored, and not exhausted needing another vacation? This is an invitation into a way of life that resets our brains, resets our minds, resets our families around a God who is present, available, loving, and faithful that you are no longer slaves, but are set free. And so that's the invitation of Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is the Jesus who says, come and follow me. When we talk about surrendering our life to Christ, we're talking about surrendering to a good king who sees you and knows you and loves you. When we talk about becoming a Christian, we're talking about entering into a whole new way of life where the world is turned right side up and heaven becomes something that everything in us is aiming for and pointing to. That's the invitation of this Jesus life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these rhythms of grace. And God, may we be a people that as you shape and form us, Lord, as we stumble our way into these and they feel clumsy or they're hard at first because it's so different, continue to just give us the grace and allow us to give ourselves the grace to just keep learning to walk in alignment with your way of life. That our days, our waking and our sleeping would be this breathing in and breathing out of your presence. That our week would fall into alignment with your created design of stopping to rest and remember to celebrate and be refreshed by you. And that our seasons, our celebrations will be signposts of heaven, a day unto the Lord, a delight in your presence with us, your children. So Lord, even as we take communion, remember that moment of your last supper where you broke that bread and you took that cup of the Passover and said all of this was pointing to you your body given for us your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins take, eat, take and drink in remembrance of me and so Jesus in the act of communion in this precious sacrament where we remember that you have invited us into the forgiveness of sins 